Well, we are speaking tonight, and the songs can be your clue, about the scriptures, about God's revelation, really. And our text for this evening is we're doing some selected psalms. We're in Psalm 19, Psalm 19. And uh, I'd like to read all 14 verses uh, as we begin. So encourage, I encourage you to look along in your Bible. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto to day such utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor language, their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and the, their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of the heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yet than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from my secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins, and let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. This psalm is a psalm of David. You see that at the beginning, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. And so David wrote this psalm. Uh, as I mentioned on Wednesday night, to me this kind of reflects uh, his shepherd background. You can almost imagine David sitting out on a field, uh, on a hill over Bethlehem, and um, as he's watching the sheep, he just starts noticing the wonders of be- and beauty of creation around him. And I wonder if he thought as a young man, oh, this is great. I'm so glad I'm a shepherd. What a, what a beautiful place to, to be. But as he saw the rolling hills, as he saw the, the green grass in the right time of year, in the spring times, as he, you know, as he saw the, the stars at night, the sunrise, the sunset, um, you know, he just thought of, of God's glory on display. And as he thought from that, his mind went on to God's word. And, but you just get the sense. These are the meditations of someone who has enjoyed uh, being in God's creation and, and being able to meditate, the freedoms a shepherd could enjoy. I don't know that he wrote this while he was shepherd. Uh, he could have, again, uh, thought back. Perhaps he's uh, there in the palace as king and and uh, the fact that he writes this is for the chief musician, a psalm of David. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe this is a psalm he started composing or composed and then writes down in his later years or finishes in his later years. I think I've shared with you, I've been reading uh, 
a biography on Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And when, was he, when he was in the um, Soviet gulags, the Soviet um, concentration camps, um, they were not allowed to have paper. And if they were discovered to be writing any notes, they would be destroyed and punished. Uh, and so what he would do is he would, and, other, and some other poets did this as well, he, he, was a, you know, he was a literary man. And writing was his reason to exist in many ways. And so even before he became a believer, but especially afterwards, he would write down um, his thoughts and then memorize them and destroy the, uh, the paper before someone might find it. And so he had thousands of his own verses uh, memorized. And when he finished and was released from the gulag, then he took on the task of writing down uh, those uh, things that he had uh, recorded in his mind. And so did David maybe compose a poem and then in his later years um, bring it up, brush it off, add to it? Maybe. But again, I think when it's written in David's life, I'm not sure. But to me, it sounds like someone who's sat as a shepherd on the hills over Bethlehem. He'll speak of revelation uh, in, in creation and in the scriptures. Um, and again, my title for tonight is God's Two Great Books, and I borrowed that from my friend Mr. Spurgeon, uh, the two great books of Revelation, Nature and Scripture. On Wednesday night, I, I quoted um, C.S. Lewis, who, again, you know, is professor of English at Oxford University. Uh, literature, poetry were his passions. And so it's important, significant to me that he says this, of Psalm 19, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Most readers will remember its structure, six verses about nature, five about the law, and four of the personal prayer. But again, uh, I am no, no expert at all on poetry. And so in a literary scholar like that who has given his life and passion to literature and poetry makes such a statement um, I think it's significant. Many have commented on how beautiful the psalm is. So I think it's something we should consider. So tonight, Psalm 19. Uh, we first start with the first book, the book of creation, in verses 1 to 6. Um, he says that in verse 1, the, To the chief musician, a psalm of David, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. And so when David reflects on revelation in creation, his mind turns to the heavens. God is revealed in all of creation. You can see his hand through the microscope as well as the telescope. And that's, um, you know, I spent more time, I don't know too much about stars, but I spent a lot of time looking through microscopes. And still, the marvel of God's creation is, is manifest. But he, as he looks and sees the heavens, he just, I think, probably felt some of his smallness and saw the incredible splendor of God's glory. And the amazing thing is, David didn't have a clue of what was out there. You know, he, uh, he, it was, we have these telescopes. We have sent um, ships into space, you know, landed things on Mars. All of that unknown to him. And yet he could still see God's glory so beautifully displayed. Um, I think that upward look to the glory is... Um, kind of a, a way as he reflects on God's majesty, you can't help but 
see man's humility. And Psalm, a couple of passages in Isaiah 40 come to mind. Verse 12, Isaiah 40, 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? So man feels, oh, this is so huge. And take it all in. And, and so he's saying, God has measured the waters, the oceans, in the hollow of his hand. That's not much. That's how many cranberries I throw in my oatmeal in the morning. There. <laughs> and that's what God thinks of the oceans. He's measured heaven with the span, tip of your fingers, and calculated the dust of the earth and measured. That's incredible. He, he, he's measured the dust of the earth. He's weighed the mountains and scales and the hills and balance. Behold, in verse 15, the nations are as a drop in the bucket. You've heard that expression. That's just a, a drop in the bucket. All these glorious nations in, in David's day, Egypt, uh, Assyria, Persia, the Hittites and others. A drop in the bucket. And you know what's something about a drop in the bucket? You don't even notice it. A drop in the bucket. And counted as small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the aisles as a very little thing. So as, as he sees the splendor and glory and think, God's spoken into, get, into, into, into existence. <laughs> and this massive spread of the heavens before me, God measures it with his hand. Of course, God doesn't have a hand. He's using figurative language to say it's nothing to him. And so he, notice he says the heavens literally are declaring God's glory. His bigness, his greatness, is, is, is glory has the idea of heaviness, he's, his glory. And it's a continuous declaration. They're constantly declaring God's glory. But I might mention in verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. That's the only reference to God in the first six verses. And notice later as we get to the scriptures, you'll see the Lord, Yahweh, 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 for for six times. Um, But here, God, and this is the simple name for God, El, E-L, not even Elohim, like Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, Elohim created. El, Elohim, has the idea of strength. We'll talk about Yahweh, Jehovah, later, but that has more the emphasis on personal relationship, covenant faithfulness. But, but here, God's strength is seen, but um, he doesn't keep mentioning God in, that, in his name there. But as he sees God revealed in glory, I'm reminded of what Paul said in Romans 9, 1, verses 19 and 20. Because what man may know of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. He's describing, how do you know, Paul, when you say God's wrath is, is displayed against those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. He says, because man knows the truth. What may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So Paul looked at the heavens and said, 
You cannot tell me there is no God. You cannot tell me that God, you don't know that God is powerful, mighty, all-knowing. And you must give an account to him. Creation doesn't give us enough information for salvation. But it does have enough information for condemnation. Because what Paul says, what God has revealed, man has rejected and rebelled against. How do we know? God's glory is seen in creation and man makes little animals out of clay and metal and worships them. And so Paul says what David says, God's glory is seen. Let me read you a, um, something I think I pulled from, well, I got it from one of the commentaries. I think it may have been Spurgeon. Where is your God? Show him to me, said a proud heathen monarch to a devout Jew. Show you my, I, I cannot show you my God. Sounds like. John chapter 3. But come with me and I will show you one of his messengers. Taking him to the open air, he pointed to the unclouded sun and said, Look at that. I cannot. It pains my eyes, said the monarch. Then said the Jew, How could you look on the face whom, of him at whose rebuke the pillars of heaven tremble? You can't even look at one of his little creations. How do you expect me to show you God? So David says, I look, and God's glory is being declared. He goes on in verse 2. Day to day utters speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So day and night, 24-7, they're declaring God's glory. Again, Romans 1.20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by things that are made, even the eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. So God is being declared nonstop. That, that expression, day under day, utters speech. When I hear, see the word utter, I get the idea of kind of, that's what students do in class when they're not supposed to be talking. Uh, just, uttering doesn't quite do it. The word here is, is like a bubbling forth, like a, like a spring that is con- that's just pouring forth. And so there's, so God's word is just constantly bubbling his glory, God's creation. Spurgeon said, he who looks up to the firmament and then writes himself down an atheist, brands himself at the same moment as an idiot or a liar. So a lot of people will argue, you know, creation, evolution, But I think any intelligent person that would honestly look at creation would have to say, somebody did this. It's too incredible. And many a scientist, even unbelieving scientists, have said the same thing. Like men like Einstein and others, I I found a website and, and I copied I don't know how many quotes from various scientists and finally, I gave up. I don't know how many pages it were. And, um, but it's just overwhelming. Throughout the decades, so many scientists, some believers and some not, cannot help but say, this didn't just happen. It just doesn't make any sense. Well, Psalm verse 3 says, there is no speech nor language. Uh, in, in the New King James, it says, where their voice is not heard... Uh, that word where is, um, I think, should be in italics. Let me see. Yeah. 
um, that means the word's not there. And it makes much more sense to read it the way it is. There is no speech nor language. Their voice is not heard. And so that almost seems contradictory. The heavens are constantly talking, but there's no speech. But David's point is, it's, it's nonverbal communication. It's constant communication, but it's nonverbal. God is showing us one indicator after another. And I think we're to see his power, his, his, his expansiveness, his majesty, his wisdom. There's a whole field of study of ecology and, and how the various aspects all fit together. And we talk about ecosystems. If you, if you take this creature out, then it could have effects on so many others. But God designed it as, as this incredibly interrelated, balanced system. Remarkable. And, but he says, there is no speech, their voice is not heard. And, and so I like to say the book of creation is a wordless book. And yet, the book can be read with eyes of faith. Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote a poem, or part of, and in part of it she says this, Earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush aflame with God. But only those who see take off their shoes. Right? That's thinking of bush taking off shoes. What's it thinking of? The burning bush? Only those who see take off their shoes. The rest just sit around and eat and pluck blackberries. So some people... All they see is a bush with blackberries and they sit down and eat. But those who have the eyes of faith, they, oh God, what an amazing thing. Psalm 19.4. Speaking again of the heavens. Their line has gone out through all the earth, their words to the end of the world. And then he has set a tabernacle for the sun. So again, just this, the God's, all through creation, God's glory is seen. So the further we send our our satellites, and the further we send our exploratory space vehicles, the more we will see of God's glory. And then he, he, he just takes one example. And he could have taken a tree. He could have taken the, the mountains. He could have taken so many things, but he just says, let's think about the sun. Let's think about the sun. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. So he pictures the sun, and the fact it's coming out of his tabernacle suggests to me the sunrise. And 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 it seems like sunrises are almost like snowflakes. Everyone is a little bit different. And and yet there's such a a beautiful glory. The quietness, the, the birds start singing in response. And he says, so it's like the bridegroom coming out of his chamber. There, that's the picture of someone dressed like he will dress only one time in his life, in his greatest finery, uh, to, in a sense, look like a king. Out comes the, 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 the groom in the happiest of days. That's the sun at sunrise. But then it describes him not just as the bridegroom, but as, as a powerful man running his race. And so there's the sun is both... Uh, Glorious and beautiful and powerful. Full of like youthful energy and powerful. 
It's amazing to watch it running, running its course. And that's one of the things that's phenomenal, isn't it? Even back then they knew. They could tell you what time the, you, you could set your watch by where the sun is. And soon enough, they figured out, let's do sundials. Which the sun, it, it's, it, we, it's per, so predictable. Again, how many people go to bed at night and wonder, I wonder if the sun will rise tomorrow? And, and you know, you can look, on the, uh, look up on the calendars and all that, and they'll tell you exactly what time sunrise, sunset will be. He runs his course regularly, faithfully. And his power, again, one of the things that strikes me is so amazing. 90, our sun is 93 million miles, miles away, and, and the astronomers tell us that it's, it's a small sun. But what's amazing to me is that you stand out in the, exposed to that sun that's 93 million miles away, and it can blister your skin. It's just amazing to me, the power of that. And, 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 and that power... Uh, God designed a system called things like uh, photosynthesis using chlorophyll that all these plants can use that power and accomplish great things. Amazing, God's creation. So, so David looks and he says, look at this creation, look at the wisdom, look at the beauty, look at the power and the awesomeness. God's glory is seen. Then he turns to the other book, the book of Scripture. Now notice this, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. What a contrast. He started Psalm 19, Ale is a God of creation. Now you see he uses God's divine name, Yahweh or Jehovah, and it's used throughout. That's the name of God's covenant-keeping faithfulness. The one he uses to communicate his character to his people. Moses saying, whom shall I send sent me? Send, tell him my name, Yahweh, the God who is. Um, if you like, you can sit down sometime and make a little chart. There are six nouns. Six adjectives and six verbs or effects of each of these uh, description of God's Bible. Um, so the law of the Lord, there's the law is perfect, converting the soul. So you see that noun, adjective, verb, and, and action or effect. Let's talk about those nouns first. The law, the names he uses. And if you want more, Psalm 119. <laughs> but here's just... Um, it's, it's, as he's talking about the different names and adjectives and effects, I, I think of a, a jeweler bringing out one of his precious gems and saying, look at this, and just look at it, look at it. Or in a more, more mundane way, I've told you, Barb and I like to watch sometimes the uh, antique road show. And it's kind of fun, you know, they bring out these things about which I know nothing. And shortly I'm an expert on that part. But, but they bring them out, and sometimes it's kind of fun, they'll... They'll take this item and they'll start you know, turning it around. And, and even the owner that's been in their family for generations, oh, I didn't realize this. Oh, yeah, I see that. And they'll say, you see this mark? That tells me who did it and when. You see this little characteristic? That tells me this or that. And so what David, in the same way, is taking, us, taking God's word and just holding it up and saying, look at the multiple facets. It's not just a simple book. 
It's, it's God's law, and that, that word here is uh, Torah. When we hear law, we think of um, law code. But the word Torah has a lot to do, it means can be used of projecting, even like shooting an arrow, the verb related to it. It has the idea of, to me, a, a better translation is God's revelation or teaching. If you can hear it, okay, Torah is what is revealed or taught. Uh, in Israel, a female teacher is a morah, one who teaches, one who... And so, so this is teaching, instruction, revelation. The next word, testimony. Well, we know that word. You give testimony in court. It's, it's bearing witness of what is known to be true. Statutes speak of uh, things that have been appointed, set in order. Commandment. If you've been around Jewish friends, you might hear the word mitzvah. Oh, that's a mitzvah. That's a commandment. That's a responsibility. And so God gives commandments. Uh, the fear of the Lord. Um, I think, how is that? What, that's, this is a, what's called a metonymy of effect. It's a figure speech where the, the, the thing is described by what it causes. God's word causes godly fear. And as we read his book, we are in awe of him. And, and when we see the fear of the Lord, part of the fear of the Lord is a sense of accountability. If I fear the Lord, I know I must answer to him. The fear, so God's word is, his, is the fear of the Lord. Uh, judgments, uh, those have the idea of, of decisions being made and, and rulings. So God's word is multifaceted, commandments, judgments, and he could have gone on. Wisdom, but revelation. God's word is, is, is multifaceted. Sometimes that's our mistake. People will say, well, the Bible, it's just one book. First thing, it's not just one book. I like to tell people it's, it's a library of 66 books written over a period of some 1,500 years in three different languages by at least 40 different, different authors on three different continents. That kind of gives you a flavor. This is a, quite a library. And so um, then he goes, oh, let's look at these adjectives to describe the, the, this book. He says it's perfect. That has the idea of complete sound. God's word is everything we need to know from God in terms of our relationship to him and our responsibilities to him. It's complete too often people seem to be always wanting to add to it with, uh, you know, God told me this and God told me that. Dig into God's word. It's sure. And that has the idea, it's related to the word amen, which means I agree with that. It's reliable. It's trustworthy. It's sure. You ever read something, maybe a book or something, uh, some of these uh, you know, books on uh, maybe nutrition, whatever it might be, you pick up on the stand outside the, at a Walmart right there by the check-in, you think, can I really trust this book? Or better yet, the internet. Well, I read it on the internet. Yeah. Is it sure? God's word is absolutely sure. Is it right? That's the especially, not right, correct but this has the idea of morally upright. It's related to the word straight. 
It's, it's morally good and, uh, and, and upright. It's pure. There is no admixture of error. I think some doctrinal statements will use that expression. It's not adulterated with, with any, it's not contaminated with error. This is where the liberals who deny the inerrancy of Scripture, the inspiration of Scripture, well, they, they would say, um, it's, it's man's ideas are, are so woven through it, you don't know what's God's and what's man's. That's not at all what the Bible is. It's pure, it's, it's, and it's unadulterated. It's perfectly, completely, and only God's revelation. Again, some of the critics, they, they don't like, for example, some of the moral standards that Paul uh, writes about in his epistles and say, well, that's Paul. Paul had his problems. No, Paul was writing God's word. It's pure. It is purely God's and only God's truth. It's clean. It's not in any way stained or impure. And that, that's a word that, you know, if you were going to bring a sacrifice, it had to be clean. So there's no blemishes in this. It's true. Now, have you ever heard the name Emmet? This is the word here, true. It's true. And it's related to the word amen also. It's God's truth. You've heard... Uh, Francis Schaeffer used to talk about true truth. You know, it's true. You could say that uh, water is H2O. But the problem with any scientific knowledge is it's based on faulty, potentially faulty observation and faulty interpretation. Man's view of science uh, is, is constantly changing. To me, one of the great illustrations is just we still haven't figured out how a baby is supposed to lie down. How hard is this? We're doing this for thousands of years. But, but how, how it changes. God's word is true. It's unchanging. Now let's look at the actions or effects. So that we've seen this, the, 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 the nouns or names, if you will. Now we see the adjectives. Now let's look at the actions or effects. It's, it converts the soul. And that reminds me of the... Um, Psalm 23, right, restoring or converting the soul. It can have either of two meanings. It can mean to convert as in turn you back from error, repentance. But it can also have the sense of restoring and refreshing. And God's word does both, doesn't it? Making wise the simple. And so uh, God gives wisdom. God gives wisdom. Rejoicing the heart. You know, if we truly think on God's word, it brings such joy. Because it is so true. It is so right. Enlightening the eyes. Um, it, 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 it brings us light. It brings us truth. That reminds me of Anne Canopy. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke The dungeon flamed with light. God's word brings light into our darkness. Um, Psalm 40, 31 comes to mind. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God's truth is all of that. Enduring forever. Have you ever gone back and um, 
maybe picked up a book that was written a few decades ago. Oh, read some of these that were written back in the 1980s and some of the counsel they give on things. It's laughable. I kind of like sometimes uh, looking at the history of uh, medicine. And it's fascinating to me that you think, boy, if they actually gave people that, they must have been dropping like flies. This, you know. And so, of course, they'd always blame, well, the disease or whatever. But, you know, it's like bleeding and some of these other things. That it's like, what were you thinking? God's truth is unchanging because God is unchanging. And so one of our problems, probably in every generation, is we try sometimes to make the Bible fit the culture. That's a mistake. God's word is the standard. View our culture from the standard of God's word. It's, uh, it's enduring forever. It's righteous altogether. And so it, it's, it's, it's right. It's, it's just in all that it says. Well, going, so having just looked over the multitude of descriptions in verses 10 and 11, moreover, to be, more to be desired are they than gold, God's word. Yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. More desired than gold, much fine gold. So it's true treasure. It's intrinsically valuable. I constantly hear on the radio ads for different kinds of investments. This is the greatest investment. Not just having a Bible, not even just reading the Bible, but taking it to heart. This is true value. This is true value and lasting value. Our Lord said in Matthew 16, 6, 19 to 21, Matthew 6, 19 to 21, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so even then, 2,000 years ago, the Lord had to warn about uh, where is your treasure? God's truth is our treasure. Sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. Again, I mentioned on Wednesday night, they didn't have many sweets back then. Uh, honey, uh, dates, uh, or date, honey made from dates, that was, a, that was about it. Can you imagine a world without chocolate? <laughs> Stunning. But... God's word is sweeter than honey. It's, it's um, and I read one of the older commentators said, young people, they like the pleasures of life. Old people like the securities of wealth. The Bible, it's both sweet and gold. It's all we need. It's, it's our great treasure. Um, he says, it's not, it's moreover by them your servant is warned and keeping them there's great reward. It's both protective and um, it also blesses. So it's kind of negative. It keeps you from harm. Positive, it brings reward. So God's word warns us about all the errors of sin and the errors of folly. Oh, read through the book of Proverbs. One warning after another. But it also gives wisdom in, how to, in, in prospering. And not just in the physical and material realm, but spiritually. It warns and gives reward. Well, then finally in verses in 
12 to 14, God's revelation at work in the heart. So David first begins and says, oh God, you've revealed yourself in creation. Stunning. Then he thinks about, but he says, but that's nothing compared to what's in this book. And by the way, we have more of this book than he did, right? You know, he had the Torah, he had you know, Moses' writings, Job. He wrote some of the Psalms. Joshua, Judges, Ruth came later because she talks about there. Anyway, he didn't have the Bible we have. And yes, oh, it's wonderful. But now he says, what does that Bible, what does your revelation say to, my, to me in my heart? Verse 12, who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. There's no hiding from the heat of the sun. There's no hiding from the searching of God's word. Remember when Isaiah, God's prophet, when he saw the Lord, suddenly he saw his own sinfulness and how he felt so unclean and unworthy. God's word reveals, as we examine our lives, our thoughts, our actions, our words, as, as we're in God's word we're, and the light of his truth is shining, it, it reveals things. And David said, notice, help me to see who can understand his errors. You see, Jeremiah said it this way, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? David said, I know I'm a sinner, but I don't know how much a sinner I am. I, I have hidden deceits, deceitful sins, but God's word puts a light on them. And so he prays, he says, who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from my secret faults. He goes on in verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. So he said, I have hidden sins. Cleanse me. Protect me from presumptuous sins. Intentional sins. Bold sins. Like seeing... Bathsheba, that was a bold, flagrant sin. He knew, I don't know if he wrote this before or after, but he knew how destructive that is. And so he said, protect me, Father, from intentional, bold sin. He knows that sin is a cruel taskmaster. Keep me back from from presumption. Let them not have dominion over me presumptuous sins those bold sins can can take over a life whether it be uh, drugs or immorality or or other things like that it can have a life control he says oh lord keep me from such sins that would grab hold of me then i shall be blameless and innocent of my trans uh, transgression so notice he says i want to be perfect i shall be blameless that's the word perfect your word is perfect. I want to be perfect. Not without sin. But, but that's the idea of blameless. Lord, give me that integrity of heart and life. 
And so in verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. So he's gone from seeing his sin and praying forgiveness and cleansing. He prays God protect him from the power of sin in his life. And now he, he prays, let the words of my mouth, again, there is no sinless mouth, right? But Lord, may the words of my mouth be pleasing. And pleasing to me, um, I don't know, it's not a strong enough term. Delightful. Bringing joy. May my words, may what come out of my mouth, always bring you joy. We wrestle with that because sometimes what comes out of our mouth doesn't even bring us joy. I can't believe I said that. And so God, help me that my words will not even just be right in my mind, but right in your eyes. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, so my unspoken words, recognizing what I say, what I think, Lord, may it all be pleasing, delightful to you. And he says, O Lord, my strength, my rock, my redeemer. And so, as he thinks of God's word, he sees God's glory. But as he sees God's glory, he sees his own sinfulness. And he prays for God's mercy. See, that's how God's word is supposed to work with us. As we read it, I think it's bring, bring us delight. You see it as a beautiful thing. But you could see its beauty without taking it to heart. I've mentioned probably before, I, I took a course on the, the Bible as literature at Berkeley. Uh, the professor, he got excited about the Bible. That was incredible. He would, he would read some passages and say, isn't that incredible how well it expresses that? Now, he was a total unbeliever. And he spent a good deal of time in class attacking the Bible as, you know, full of error, written by men, etc., etc. But frankly, he delighted in the beauty of Scripture as a book, as literature. But he didn't want the book that would examine his heart and change his heart. And so David takes God's revelation and says, it's beautiful. Let me see its beauty. Let me see your beauty. But Father, the more I see your beauty, the more I see my unbeauty. Have you ever gotten in your car, maybe even come to church, and then you park next to another vehicle, and you have to put your sunglasses on because of the sparkle of the cleanness. And then you look at your vehicle right next to it. Think maybe I'll move down a few spaces. There's something about that contrast that just uh, lights it up. The more we see God's glory in his word, it will reveal our own sin, our own failings, how far we come short. But that's good. Because in in putting a light on our failings, that is also putting a light on the path of obedience and repentance and restoration. You know, that you restore my soul. And so that David's, as he has come to God's word, his prayer is, Lord, may my heart be changed by you and for you.
Father, how I pray that that would be our longing of each of our hearts. That we might know you and see you so well. That we will see how much we need to grow. And Father, growth will only come by your grace. And so we pray that you would work in our hearts so that the words and even the thoughts of our hearts will delight your soul. I pray this in Jesus' name. Mm-hmm.